Hey everyone, my name is Maggie Tang. And I'm Elena Cho. And welcome to Gourmand, a show set on empowering the next generation of food lovers and leaders. Happy Monday, everyone. Maggie and I are so excited to release this special episode with TV personality, culinary traveler, cook, and author Adam Richman. You may know Adam from his time on the travel channels Man vs. Food or Secret Eats with Adam Richman. In this episode, we chat with Adam about the intersection of food, history, and culture, breaking into the world of food television, and his upcoming series, Modern Marvels and the Food That Built America. Let's dig in. Welcome to Gourmand, Adam. Thank you so much. So we wanted to start at the beginning, and we were just kind of chatting about this, but I know you were born and raised in Brooklyn, as I was, and so I'm curious uh, where your interest in food began, and if that had anything to do with growing up in New York. Absolutely. I think growing up in New York, I think um, you and I are, I'm a little longer in the tooth than you. I never thought I'd get like to that age where I say expressions like that. But the truth of the matter is the Brooklyn, so you know of the Brooklyn that MTV wanted to film a real world in where bands like Interpol and actors like Adrian Grenier wanted to call it home. You know what I mean? Where the Beckhams have a kid named Brooklyn. But I I grew up a couple decades ahead of y'all in Brooklyn, and my Brooklyn was not skinny jean, ironic mustache. All this is an anomaly. Like, I remember when the cops wouldn't come to Bushwick because they were throwing clawfoot tubs off of the apartment buildings. So... The Brooklyn that I grew up in was very much more analogous to the Queens of 2021 than it is Brooklyn. So that said, my pop had a law office in Manhattan's Chinatown. We lived in a neighborhood that was Italian, Irish, a little bit of Polish, um, Syrian. So like my dad instilled in me the uh, ethos of you don't have to finish it, but you should at least try it. And I remember he took me to a dim sum parlor and I remember hearing things like chicken feet and pig's blood and said, Ugh. and I remember my father very sternly pulling me aside. You know, my dad wasn't like a violent man by any stretch of the imagination, but very firm and of the old school and, you know, sir and ma'am and carry a handkerchief and, and he said, um, don't ever do that again. You don't know things that mommy makes that other people might say is yuck, you know, chopped liver, gefilte fish, you know, and there was plenty of Jewish dishes that I thought were nasty. That was the thing. Like, there were things that I had had in, in the Jewish table called pacha, like jellied calves feet, which I was like, okay, you know what? That shit was stratified like model of the earth. Keep that away from me. Um, but I remember my dad saying, you're a guest. If my father hadn't indoctrinated me with, with that. And, you know, the beautiful thing about Avenue U between Coney Island Avenue, which is the equivalent of uh, 10th Street in, in Brooklyn, um, as Elena can tell you, and uh, Ocean Avenue, which is essentially 20th, um, you had every culture represented. You'd have like an Italian salumeria. You'd have ducks hanging in one window. You would have Polish like kolachi and um, pierogies. You'd have pilmeni at the Russian places in Brighton Beach. And I think that New York 
at least Brooklyn at that time was very much like a United Nations. Now I think you have to go to Queens. I highly recommend to the listeners of this podcast when the world returns to some semblance of normalcy as um, thankfully it seems we are doing after the results of the most recent election. Uh, there's a place in Queens called the International Night Market. And I do all the bougie food festivals and I love it. It's dope and I love meeting the fans and connecting with my contemporaries. It's awesome. But the Queens International Night Market really represents, in my opinion, what like the best of the city is. It's not the best business model because you pay like per dish and stuff, but it's, um, it's the most authentic, clear representation of New York. So you can have laksa and you can have locks. You can have takoyaki and you can have shawarma and you can have Mr. Softy and you can have, um, you know, really diverse. There's not like, like there are myriad Caribbean flavors beyond jerk, but you kind of need to live in New York to know that. What's the best thing that you've eaten there? Oh, at the Queens International Night Market. That's a spectacular question. I had this really bomb version. It was a Filipino noodle dish, but it wasn't like um, kare kare or something like that. It was like, um, it was similar though. Had the dehydrated shrimp, had chicharron, like chopped up crispy pork skin. Really interesting sauce. You know, I've always you know, the perception, I think, especially having filmed in Manila, we were all ready for lots of salt, lots of vinegar, maybe some garlic. And then to see like how Dalandan and Calamansi and these other beautiful citrus flavors worked in, how um, certain Asian traditions were like loved. So like, I remember having lechon at a place in Manila that was stuffed with truffle rice. And then one that was stuffed with Chinese five ingredient noodle, and then one that was stuffed with like saffron, more like Spanish kind of arborio style rice. So I think that there is that mix master thing. So there's a life beyond adobo and synagogue, both of which are dope, but it's cool to see the sisig. It's cool to see the other elements that were there. Chicharron bulaklak, um, like intestine. And again, people be like, intestine, ill. But again, it's like, don't yuck my yum. But also you have to realize that as um, a white dude on television who is formally trained as a sushi chef, who, um, you know, has family members from other uh, ethnic and international backgrounds in my, my greater family, then you, you, have, you have to be vigilant. And it, and it sucks when you see things marginalized in the supermarket. Like, again, I'm going to keep turning this back to poor Elena, who's like, dude, I'm not a, enough with the Brooklyn. We've established the Brooklyn thing. Leave me be. No, okay? I love it. I miss it. What are you going to so. do? Are going to ask to see my Metro card next? Like, but the thing that always gets me is, if you recall, back in the day, there'd be like a Key Food or ShopRite or Pathmark. Shout out to all the East Coast brands that, um, I, none of with whom I have an endorsement deal. Um, but they have that ethnic aisle and that always makes me feel some kind of way because like burgers, fries, and a Coke. Well, okay. Burger is named for the place in Germany that it comes from. Fries are Belgian and so does Italian. So you have two of the Axis powers represented in the most iconic American dish ever. 
can you honestly say one thing is more ethnic than another, right? Because you go to the butcher counter, and I'm sure that there's not a whole bunch of Jews buying chitlins, but chitlins are still sold. Is that not ethnic? You know what I mean? There's the Jewish end cap. Is that not that whole matzah, gefilte fish, coffee cake that weighs 900 pounds in a box type of section? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you were able to try just so many foods growing up. And I guess it's so different from how I grew up because, like, my parents just ate like Chinese food at home, and like the fancy places we'd go would be like Cheesecake Factory or like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, when did you decide that you wanted to turn food into a career? Like, was that what you were thinking when you were at Emory? Or well, I started the food journal that helped me get Man versus Food while I was at Emory. That's the truth. In '95. I had, it sounds like I had the most morose love life ever because I'm mentioning yet another breakup, but I had had a breakup with someone I dated for two years and it's like sophomore, junior year. That's like a good part. That's like, you know, when I see these like, these like breakups on like, you know, Maury or whatever else, like I gave you my tender years. I gave you my sophomore and my junior year. But I had bought um, those Moleskine blank uh, books to write very emotional college breakup poetry in and then i went to this i used to just go, love to go for drives in atlanta because it was just so different than anything i knew growing up and i found a place called virginia's um on the edge of the virginia highland neighborhood in um in atlanta and it was i used to love this term that they would use in food reviews a boite b-o-i-t-e-e -E, like the french word for box um Yes, I speak French. I'm not pretentious. And um, I started writing about my experience with the food and the music that was playing and they, the fact that they had the most interesting menu. They would make their own ice cream, but they also had this wonderful Indonesian salad called Gado Gado. And Van Morrison's uh, Astral Works was playing, uh, Astral Weeks was playing, so I'm writing that. And then I realized that all those feelings and all those things, because I was never very facile with, dear diary, today was a bad day. Like I couldn't do that. But excuse me, I could write honestly about what was around me and how I felt. And in writing about the waitress, the music, the food, all the feeling stuff came out. And it came out in a much more natural way than if it were like this kind of bloodletting that happened so yeah so i did that and then started augmenting that journey um that food journey you know the in the journal um going to barbecue places going to church barbecues where i was the only white person where it was like church fundraisers and it was like meeting three in a parking lot in peachtree city um going to the Whistle Stop Cafe, Cafe for Fried Green Tomatoes and Fat Matt's Rib Shack to hear blues and get a barbecue sandwich and trying flavor, learning that Morning Glory is watercress, like little things like this. But then, um, so that was, that was the thing. But in terms of moving it into a proper career, I had read a book that my stepmother had given me called The Renaissance Soul, Life Design for People with Too Many Passions to Pick Just One. And that was really very formative. And um, to shorten this story, there were 
a couple of exercises in the book that allowed me to ascertain that food and entertainment were my two passions. And I knew I needed to try to fuse them both to have like a good remunerative career. And um, I signed, I went to, I got my master's in 2003 from uh, the Yale University School of Drama. And I got signed by agents coming out of school. And my commercial agents used to send these big mass emails around like Discovery Channel looking for blonde bilingual scuba diver who can knit. You know what I mean? And so I had already determined from the Renaissance Soul like food TV is what I want. So there's an opportunity in food TV and I launched myself at it like a juggernaut and it was like, I uh, found out before one of my shifts, like I got this call, but I was like, wait, so do I have the job? They're like, well, you have the job provided there is a job to have. And um, we shot a sizzle trailer. That's the truth. We pitched man versus food with a sizzle trailer. We shot all in Brooklyn, Elena. And um, what we did was we had a van, like a creepy, like Pokemon card van. And we, um, I had a suitcase with different clothes. And so I put on something like nondescript, like the hoodie I'm wearing now, let's say, right? And I would go, I'm in Massachusetts and I'm on my way to get the best clam chowder, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Then we like go into a diner and hiking, like clam chowder. Then run into the van, put on a gingham shirt. It was so cold that day. And I had to just have a gingham shirt and rolled up sleeves, walking in front of a random brick wall, Williamsburg. I'm, I'm in North Carolina on the search for some of the best barbecue. And then we went to like Feta Sao or some other place for like barbecue. And we just filmed it to show what it would look like. But clearly for a sizzle trailer, you're not going to fly me here, there and everywhere. Um, and then, yeah, then um, the Shark Entertainment pitched the show and we got picked up for 10 episodes. So I was very blessed. But it wasn't necessarily, I knew I had a passion for food. I knew I had a passion. I had worked in television for the 96 Olympic Games. And I had gone to, um, people don't believe me because I am a honky, but I went to Clark Atlanta uh, summers and weekends to get broadcast training. So I remember telling the rapper Killer Mike, who has since become a good friend of mine, like, I know you don't believe, because he's you know, a Morehouse guy. I was like, uh, you know, I actually attended Clark Atlanta. He's like, come on, man. Come on, you attended Clark. I'm like, no, well, my classes were on Abernathy and I used to, whatever. It, so it's, it's really cool. And I, I consider myself blessed to have that kind of exposure. Yeah. What was the world of food TV and I guess kind of food media like at that time? Because um, it's definitely well, exploded. Well, yeah, I mean, so this is a fact that I probably shouldn't really admit so often, um, but what are they going to do, you know, go back in time and arrest me, but um, I used to get Illegal Food Network. Um, I used to have like just broadcast TV. Um, so the basement in which my office is used to be my old apartment. Um, this, the room I'm in now was my old bedroom. In fact, this is the very room I was in when I found out I got my show. It's the truth. Matt Sharp told me that they definitely know by May 1st. May 1st comes and goes. No one calls me. So I go to the bar across the street and I get super fucking drunk, like really depressed, like head resting on the Guinness like this. And I wake up in the afternoon and this is the old flip phone days. So I see the little red message light blinking on my LG. 
and I looked and he was like, we had your phone number wrong by two digits, call us back. And then like, I was like, what? And then Matt Sharp goes, you ready to be a star, dude? And I went, what? And he tells me, I scream and then the hangover came charging back from like all sides, right? Like, like, I guess, I don't know, seven yards from where I am right now. And I fell to my knees like, oh my God, that was a bad idea. And so you're feeling like the happiness of like, oh my God, I've struggled for a half decade coming out of Yale and wanting to make something happen. And then all of a sudden it does. Um, so that was a bit crazy. So to speak to your question about what was it like? So I knew at that point, Food Network had, you know, obviously like the main celebrities it had. You had, you know, Rachel and Guy and uh, Bobby and Giada. But social really hadn't existed uh so intensely, you know, there was MySpace, there was Friendster. So this was a significant period before people could make and make a career. And I was very blessed because my two mentors, because we were the only food shows on the Travel Channel, were Andrew Zimmer and Anthony Bourdain. And so to have those two guys mentor you, to have those guys be your friends, to have those guys be able, like, to be in Saigon and be able to text Tony Bourdain and be like, where am I eating, bro? Sharing stuff. Or, like, the last time I saw him, I was filming in Rome and so was he. And, like, caught up to him. And it just even that sentence, like, I was filming my TV show while Tony Bourdain was filming his in Rome and we met up in Rome for a drink. Like... It's just so surreal to even be able to say that as a middle-aged or a relatively young foodie in the canon. So it was different. But, you know, I think the cool thing was also there was just room for me in the space. There were a lot of chefs and, you know, they needed someone who was going to be at the culinary Paul Wall and be the people's champ. So minus the teeth, of course. And the codeine, you know, no... <laughs> not sipping on lean in between food challenges versus food. <laughs> like putting a Jolly Rancher and Sprite into this styrofoam cup. Like, yeah, I'm going to eat this burrito and get crunk. Get litty to titty on this challenge. I mean, I feel like a lot of people would say that you have their dream job. You get to travel. You get to like eat amazing food. Was this what, when you first started off, was that what you expected it to be? What were kind of the challenges along the way? And I think the misperception is all you do is travel and eat. I think simply put, there is something about having your foot in the door. And that's what I was most excited about with Man vs. Food was 10 episodes or not, I now have something to point to on television that I did. I now have something to build my reel. I have something on my resume. I have something that can get me a different class of audition and a different class of agent. Did I necessarily foresee, knock on wood, 11 years later, 12 years later, being signed by William Morris, um, hosting primetime game shows on NBC, uh, being a shareholder in soccer teams in England and sponsoring a club myself and, you know, winning awards as, as food hosts at MIPCOM and Con, like things like this. No, but I think that if you're driven by accolades, then you're not really doing the damn thing. For me now, 
especially because now modern marvels being on the history channel and the food that built America being on the history channel, it kind of speaks to what I love. Cause the single thing that I love most about my life is has not been the food and the travel while they have been awesome. The best, the best aspect for me is that every day is different. I tried corporate America and I was woefully fucking bad at it. Like I was the guy with like, I had like, Five Deadly Venoms, like the old Kung Fu movie poster in my cubicle. I had a picture of Steve McQueen. I had a, a Siamese fighting fish. I would listen to Modest Mouse. I, and people were like, what, 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 what the fuck is that? Like, why, what, what is an atom? Why, why do we have one? I don't know. It's just, it was not me. It, it works very well for some people, but I just wasn't one of them. So I think the variety is, is, is so special. So this past week, we were filming episodes of Modern Marvels, and we filmed at the Wise Potato Chip Factory in Berwick, PA, and then all of a sudden, we're eating in um, White Castle and learning about the history of White Castle, the only White Castle in Pennsylvania. And yeah, there's a lot of great food, and there's chips and there's burgers and stuff along the way, and that's great. Better still, though, to walk away smarter, maybe a little bit more appreciative, and that's Again, not like getting all soundbitey, but the thing that I love about Modern Marvels personally, having done so many restaurants through Man vs. Food, Man vs. Food Nation, Best Sandwich in America, Fandemonium, Secret Eats, all these things, that like to go, wow, I never realized making bean-to-bar chocolate took over a day just for the first process when places are not constantly trying to adapt to their clientele and change the menu and then add a sriracha flavored burger because that's popular now or something, that there's a lot, there's a lot of moving parts in that experience and a lot of quality control that has to get maintained. And if I could look at the culinary world a little differently, like I remember learning how sake was made and then the next sip of sake I had was totally different. So that's, that's been really cool. And to be fair, the food's been awesome, but the people connected with the food are always better. No, and it's um, really interesting to hear you talk about modern marbles because I feel like there's such a disconnect right now between the typical American consumer and those processes that are going on behind and just by nature of the food system and kind of consumers' culture. And I feel like you're in a really cool spot there with a show like that to sort of try to bring that into the mainstream more so. I guess because food touches on everything. I mean, immigration, socioeconomic background, like, you know, you were talking about, um, uh, Maggie, you were talking about just having Chinese food, but the truth of the matter is, I think it's incumbent upon white people to learn or just people that aren't Chinese to learn how many, like, you can't just even use that umbrella group anymore. You can be perspicacious. You can be shrewd and go, I want Sichuan, I want Hunan, I want Cantonese, I want Singaporean, I want like straights born, you know, like I want Hokkien rice noodle, or I want Dandan noodle, or I want lo mein. I mean, I think that there's a distinction. And I know that it's weird because you never want to be seen to be pandering. You never want to be like, do you remember there was that shift, at least in my lifetime, when news anchors went from saying Nicaragua to Nicaragua. Like, and you're going, oh man, okay. You know what I mean? Like if you genuinely, like I still say mozzarella because that's what I grew up saying. But I, and it, it, it was like a dagger in my heart every time that man versus food, like I get a network note saying, can you say ricotta? And I was like, 
like a dagger in my heart, I fucking tell you. It was so hard. So I think that um, to see that like food and food history. So again, talking to two Penn you know, students, the idea of Philadelphia's role in confection. And when you take a step back and you go to 30,000 feet and you go, wow, M&M Mars, Hershey's, the Boyer Candy Company, Shane Confectionery, where we film for Modern Marvels, all in Pennsylvania. Why? Because Philadelphia was this incredibly prolific port when cocoa beans were coming into America. That's why you have so many confectioners. I think the more that people can take ownership of their food, you can really taste that journey. I mean, there's a reason why certain flavors exist. Bagels, which started in Poland to honor an Austrian prince that came through Russia to Canada, Canada to New York. Like, it's this incredible circuitous route to get to our dinner table. And the more you actually begin picking apart the pearls on that necklace, you eventually really can see that meal for what it's worth. And, and I, I've always appreciated that. Like, I love, like, I have gone through a recent deep, profound obsession with Zetuan cuisine, for example. And, and we're talking about Xi'an, and we talk about Zetuan, and we talk about this mala sensation that can't be recreated with a peppercorn that was banned up until the earliest parts of the 21st century. And now people know, people love, people, you know, make pho spiced brisket. People know that it's not pronounced pho anymore, pho, and they say pho. They only know because of these stories that they hear that kind of contextualize it. So like, that's why like I've been able to do shows about soccer and food now history and food and the food that built america is so valuable to me because like i look at you two as these young culinary entrepreneurs uh in an environment where in 2021 two young women have myriad more opportunities than they may have in 1974 so i think um to see how much culinary entrepreneurship was involved for just Heinz to do what Heinz did, what Hershey to do, what Campbell's did. The fact that the popsicle was invented by accident. A guy left a, a, a stirring stick in a fruit drink he left out on his porch in San Francisco and started making it. And his kids started referring to it as Pop's Icicle. And then that became Popsicle that these brilliant little moments of inspiration and necessity and you know i think that i hope that these series make people both go huh i never knew that was the, the case like i never knew that conching chocolate took that long that um ethically sourcing beans is that expensive but has a profound effect on our global economy and to be fair even like the stasis even international relations the next time you eat chocolate that's like a single origin chocolate, you can appreciate the people who picked it, the people who brought it to you, the people who cleaned it, roasted. You know, there's, there's quite a bit of processes involved, and um, I doubt you will look at, at the, the grocery aisle the same way after either one of these. I don't. I don't. Um, I think we take a lot of like the food that we eat for granted, or like we just see, oh, we can go to the store and get an Oreo, or like Domino's and Pizza Hut have always been there, but. 
thinking, like watching how, like the food that built America and really learning their stories and thinking about how they were so innovative at that time. Like it didn't exist. And just how many things that like people have come up with that were so novel at the time, like food delivery, we take that for granted and all the other stories. Yeah, I mean, that's the best part about it because, you know, for all the little artisanal chocolate makers, someone Hershey's had to come first, you know? For all the artisanal cheese makers, Kraft had to find a way towards food safety and shelf stabilization. You know, the, the, the phrase that my crew teases me about that I do use an inordinate amount because the really good companies do this is where modernity and antiquity are truly walking hand in hand, where you go, this is how chocolate was always made. How do we respect tradition enough? to still create the traditional product with the type of culinary integrity that people have come to expect, yet still have a product that is easily producible, producible to modern FDA standards, and producible in the volume that people wanted. You know, ice cream was done by normally freezing and churning and freezing and churning. And now, how are you possibly going to make your skin, your gluten-free, your soy ice cream, your almond milk ice cream, you know, I mean, Andrew Zimmern once rhapsodized about salt and straw ice cream to me. And then like I had to order and they were the weirdest, some of the weirdest damn flavors I've ever experienced in my life. They even had one month for like Halloween where they all had bugs in them. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm good though. Like I've eaten them. I've eaten my share of grasshoppers and I prefer chocolate chips personally, just FYI. I mean, I think I I can agree with that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to say like that mint chocolate chip is going to go way further than like candied grasshopper chip, whatever it was. We're going to start to sort of wrap up. And I guess our last main question for you is if you have any advice for young people, kind of people college age who are looking to enter the food world, the food industry in some capacity. Yeah, copy Elena and Maggie, like, do the damn thing. No, seriously, you know, you guys, you know, world where, I'm like, I had someone, a friend, break off some tough love for me even, you know, and people might think that I'm successful in this realm and called me out and like, you know, you're very facile with quoting this person or quoting that person. But while you're busy consuming everyone else's work and interpreting it and sharing other people's work, you should be just creating your own. And you have enough of a story to tell that you don't need to tell me what this philosopher said or this culinarian said. And I do mean this in earnest. It's so impressive where there's a great commercial for New York Film Academy that I know, again, throwing it back to Brooklyn that Elena probably has seen, where it's a bunch of people sitting at Union Square at a cafe with these high-handed opinions about film, like, oh, everything Tarantino does, it's stolen from Scorsese. And they go back and forth. And then all of a sudden someone goes, guys, could you settle? We're shooting a film over here. And there's people actually doing the damn thing. And then there's this. And someone once told me, a critic is a legless man who writes about running. All right, number one, you have to have a thick skin. Number two, Find your food story. Like, again, you guys talk about a tremendous panoply of things. And I think it's because it's what, you, what, what genuinely interests you. And I think, like, ascertain it. So for me, like, I know regional food and the stories that food tells um, are, are very, very, very intriguing to me. And I know that as long 
as I'm working within the, that realm of the interconnectivity of food. So I think that Adam Richman as stand and stir, it's fine. But I think Adam Richman going, oh my God, there's literally one guy at the entire Wise factory or one woman, depending upon who's working, with a knife that's this big who breaks down every potato that's too big or cuts every bruised spot. And I watched it happen. Have what's intriguing to you because if you're having fun and you genuinely are passionate about it, you're not working a day in your life. But then the other thing is you have to find a practical application. Hence the Maggie and Elena copying thing. Because I feel that you guys could easily have just been like in the group chat going, I really love when Dolce Bimimbap gets crispy on the bowl. I really love the corner piece of lasagna. That's all well and good. But if you have an aspiration, you need to actually produce something. And the other thing that people forget is you have to show love within the community. People compete so much in the food space. And it's, it's unfortunate because we are greater united than divided. So I just think that do it, find ways of collaborating. Gary V even says it. You want to be an influencer, you have to interact with other influencers. And then have your, your own unique voice, your own perspective. I'm never, I'm never going to try to be Tony or Andrew because Tony or Andrew did, did do damn fine jobs of that themselves. So I just got to be me and do the very best I can as me and hope that people continue to want to see me explore things on my terms and hear my voice and hear my perspective. Yeah. Well, Adam Richmond is pretty cool. So <laughs> thank you. Can I get that in writing? Well, thanks so much for taking the time to be on our show. We're so excited for your two new shows and for everyone else to tune in. Thank you. Yeah. April, I mean, excuse me, February 14th is Food That Built America. 21st is Modern Marvels. And I promise if nothing else, the machinery is so damn badass that we use. I like that. That's the thing. I'll just tell you this, the liquid chips, the liquid chocolate chips at Turkey Hill that, I mean, if you're a bit of a science geek and a bit of a tech geek is even that for you. And to be fair, even if you just like those like satisfying videos where you watch like cookie molds being made and they're just like so fascinating, I'm telling you now, the liquid chips at Turkey Hill are one of the coolest damn things I've ever seen. And by the way, you will find culinary inspiration in these, even if you don't have a mega million dollar factory. There's lots of stuff that you can steal from these things. And believe me, steal from them, I have. That's a wrap on our conversation with Adam Richman. You can find Adam on Instagram at Adam Richman and be sure to check out The Food That Built America and Modern Marvels this upcoming week on the History Channel. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're also running a recipe contest all February long for the chance to win a Raka Chocolate Baking Necessities Kit. For rules and how to enter, check out Gourmand on Instagram at Gourmand Community. I'm Elena Cho. And I'm Maggie Tang. And this is Gourmand.